0: Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Those of us who might remember some of the movies from our childhood might remember the movie The Goonies. Come on, admit it. You like The Goonies. Who doesn't love the rush of hunting for and discovering lost gold? And our guest today knows exactly what that feels like. In 1715, 11 Spanish ships filled with gold and treasures for the king of Spain left Havana, Cuba on their return voyage. The fleet made it as far as the east coast of Florida before they were overtaken by a hurricane. And in the end, all 11 ships sank, giving their treasures to the sea. That's where our guest, Brent Brisbane, comes in. He was propelled by rumors of sunken treasure, and he partnered with his father to purchase the salvage rights of the 1715 Spanish fleet. Days later, in shallow water off the coast of Florida, they made their first find a bronze cannon with nearly 100 gold and silver coins hidden inside. Are you excited yet? I am. (laughs) I'm very excited. Brent and his teams continued to make valuable finds, but hit the motherlode on July 31st, 2015, exactly 300 years the day that the ships originally sank. And when they recovered 300 gold coins, including seven royals, each valued at over $300,000 each, all told that week, they received more than $4.5 million in lost Spanish gold. Since 2010, Brent and his team have recovered close to $6.5 million worth of treasure, but they estimate there is something in the ballpark of $400 million still out there. Brent has appeared on the Today Show, nearly every cable news network, and he's traveled the world telling a story. But today he's with us in the studio with some of his treasure in tow. Welcome to the aggressive life and Cincinnati native Brent Brisbane.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with
0: you. (laughs) Dude, I cannot wait. I love this topic. I don't know anything about you. I don't know anything about what's happening here today. All I know is I have loved the idea of treasure hunting since I was a little kid. Why is that? What do you think it is about us that this topic is just so romantic and sexy?
1: I honestly can't put my finger on it. I don't know if it was Disney or Robert Louis Stevenson, but somewhere in the American culture was ingrained this thought of finding lost treasure. And it resonates with everyone that I meet. Young, old, rich, poor, male, female, it doesn't matter. People will sit and listen to me tell these stories for as long as I want to tell them. And they usually, at the end, wish me nothing but the best of luck. You brought in here a couple
0: of things you have on the table. Uh, what are these things? Are these gifts? Or are these examples you're giving me? These are well.
1: It depends they, on the they value. Look like gold. I don't <laughs> think you should give me a gift of
0: gold, though. If you want to give me a gift of gold, why don't you just go hide it someplace and I can go try to find it and have the joy of it. That
1: is part of the thrill. Actually, it's the most part of the thrill. Uh, but yes, there yeah, are gifts, and there are some demonstrations. That's a piece of pottery. So okay. that comes from what we call an olive jar shard. Basically, it was the Tupperware of the time. Everything that they transported, liquid-wise or grains, that sort of thing, were in one of these earthen vessels that had a neck at the top and an opening, and they would fill it with all of the different things. And so we find thousands of these pieces of pottery um, on a daily basis. You know, we don't find gold and silver every day. We find little... Indications that there may be more here and there, so it's in the form of this pottery and some musket balls, which I brought for you got today it. yeah um to for you and your staff that's cool, and then you've got
0: these gold uh these gold necklaces these are things that you had found that's correct now this is In really great shape. When you find this, did you have to take it to jeweler to to restore it, like put links back together,
1: or did this come just like this? It depends on what we find. Sometimes they're broken, sometimes they're intact, so we do sometimes put them back together. But the gold itself comes out of the water exactly as you see it. Gold shines forever. Nothing tarnishes it. It doesn't corrode. And so occasionally some worm rock or some lime, those kind of things will get stuck to it. But what you see, it was pulled out of the water exactly as it looks. So I'm holding something here that's like 300-ish years old? Correct. Well, it went down in 1715. So that there is 306 years old. Obviously, it was made before it sank. So, yeah, right there in that range. Dude, I got so much I want to talk about here. Dirt does a lot of uh, background
0: for me, gives me sh- cheat sheets of things to ask. And um, I'm just not even sure I want to start here because I'm just captivated by this, by this whole topic. Let's, let's start with uh, these treasures. You, f- you find a ship that's gone down, and what's the process? Because I've heard stories of people finding ships, but then the country
1: of origin takes it away. Just in your own words, tell me the beginning of this story. Absolutely. That is that is how it works now. And if a modern ship were to be found, the country of origin probably would take it away. There's a... Very famous case in Tampa, Florida, where a group called Odyssey went out and found a Spanish vessel in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They brought all this treasure back up. They estimated it to be four five or $500 million worth of silver coins that they used ROVs to bring from the bottom of the Atlantic, deep in the Atlantic. And they went into court to claim it, and the United States government gave it back to the country of Spain. All of it. No finders fee, nothing. Wow. Now, my story is different. I... Inherited or purchased the rights to these shipwrecks from a gentleman named Mel Fisher, who is a world famous treasure yeah, the hunter.
0: Down in down Absolutely in Yeah, I you. told you I like this topic. Yeah. <laughs> You're exactly you right. You purchased
1: it from him. Okay, so in 1979, Mel Fisher went into federal court, United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, and it's Maritime or Admiralty Court. And the way that you claim a shipwreck is you actually sue that shipwreck. So he went into court and he filed suit against the certain unidentified shipwreck located at such and such coordinates. And as a result of that, you have to put out public notice. So they have to come forward in this case, state their claim and prove to the judge who is entitled to these remains of these shipwrecks. Um, The only intervening party in 1979 was the state of Florida because really, truly what constituted legal notice in 1979 was a small postage stamp uh, advertisement in the Fort Pierce, Florida newspaper. So needless to say, the government of Spain did not get notice of this, and they did not really intervene in the case. So the case moved forward, and it went back and forth from 1979 to 1982, and it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And Mel Fisher won— and and as a part of the case, he decided he would ultimately settle with the state of Florida and he would have the rights in perpetuity to salvage these shipwrecks as long as we diligently salvage the wrecks. And he agreed to give the state of Florida up to 20 percent of the artifacts that we recover to put in their museum in Tallahassee and to research, study, display, loan to colleges, institutions, all of the above. So he made that agreement in 1982.
0: Yeah, it gives them all the broken shards of pottery. You can have all those, guys. I'll just take all the gold. That's your 20
1: percent. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the case. They only go for the really unique things now. The, items like the sh- pottery and the musket balls have been deemed redundant. So it's only artifacts that add to their collection. So they're really, like when we found these unique coins that we'll discuss, you know, they got a few of those. They, you know, so that's kind of how it works. And so when, once he entered into that agreement, he had that for, you know, throughout his life. And he died in 1998. And in 2010, his children decided they were going to put up the salvage rights to these shipwrecks along the east coast of Florida that were the remains of the 1715 plate fleet. My – the origin of my ships start back in basically 1700 if you want to go back that far. Um, the king of Spain had died and he had no natural heir. Okay, so he named Philip his nephew to ascend to the throne. Well, Philip was a direct descendant of Louis XV of France. And so the idea of France and Spain becoming so closely aligned under the Bourbon dynasty was really traumatic for the English and the Dutch. And they launched the War of Spanish Succession or Queen Anne's War as it's known in the Americas. And that raged from 1700 to 1714, and it was resolved with the Treaty of Utrecht. Mm -hmm. Now, the king, this new king that had just ascended to the throne as a young man, had no money really to fight this war. He spent everything he had. He had all these treasures that were amassing down in the New World. The Spanish had colonized the remnants of the indigenous peoples of South America and Mexico and began, you know, taking these treasures from their mines. Um, and so he had these treasures that had been accumulating for close to 15 years that he sorely needed to replenish his coffers after the war. So he said, you know, come hell or high water, you get down there and bring me my treasure. So a fleet of 11 ships went down to South America and Mexico and picked up all these treasures that had been amassing for you know, nearly a decade. They reconvened in Havana, Cuba on July 24th of 1715. Well, actually, they reconvened in Havana, Cuba. They reprovisioned, and they began you know, their way for the journey, and they departed on July 24th of 1715. Six days later, these 11 ships were sailing along the east coast of Florida, and a hurricane began to blow. And by 2 a.m. on July 31st of 1715, all 11 ships went down along the east coast of Florida. And that's how this treasure came to be. And then ultimately, Mel Fisher, you know, secured these rights in 1982, and I got involved in 2010. And how
0: do they even know this? I mean, they had papers back in 1700, 1715 that reported, hey, somebody looked off the coast and they
1: saw something sink. How how do they even know these ships were there? The Spanish were meticulous record keepers. So they had, you know, extensive logs of, you know, in Havana of the salvage efforts— of these, and then in the archives in Seville, Spain, they had many, many different, you know, everything from you know the inventories of the ships and and things like that. So there was a database. Uh, I guess that's a modern term, but there were was this data or this information about the origins of the ships. So in the 1950s, there was a gentleman named Kip Wagner who was actually from Dayton, Ohio. And he was a painting contractor, and he went down to this area of Florida, a little area called Sebastian. It's just north of Vero Beach. And he had a contract to paint a hotel, and he would walk these beaches, and he started finding little silver coins that he didn't realize were silver coins. They come out of the water, and they're black. They look like an Oreo cookie. They're tarnished, they're corroded, and and they, they develop a crust to them. And he began picking them up and wondering what they were. And he took them home, cleaned them up, and realized they were these Spanish coins. And so he started asking around. And he, he said, you know, what do you guys know about this? And, ah, people have been finding that stuff out there forever. But no one ever, you know, scratched the surface. And wow. He got himself a surplus army mine detector. And he began patrolling the beaches. There were no mag- metal detectors in 1950. This was just after the Korean War. So he got himself a surplus Army mine detector, began patrolling the beaches, finding period artifacts from the sev- seven, early 1700s. And ultimately, he found a freshwater well. And around that well were all these different artifacts. that. And he had d- determined that this well must have been you know dug by the survivors of this shipwreck. And so he got himself a surfboard and cut a hole in it. And put a window in a surfboard and began paddling around out in front of that well. And after a few weeks, he saw cannons on the bottom of the ocean. And that was the modern discovery of the 1715 Treasure Fleet. Wow. Now, a a modern—or he found a well—
0: but the well was submerged in the saltwater? No, no, know. no. It was up on the land. So okay. he's
1: detecting on the beach, and he's oh, finding these it, coins, and he's looking around, and then he finds this well up in the dunes, and around it were all these artifacts from that time period, got Spanish it. remnants. And he determined, wow, they, they must have dug this well because they were shipwrecked right here, and that means there's got to be a wreck right out here in front of here. Wow. And that's how he ended up paddling around on a surfboard and ultimately kind of, you know, really launching modern-day treasure hunting in—certainly uh, in Florida— Sheesh. And that was connected with your wreck? That's correct. That was one of the first wreck found of the 1715 Treasure Fleet. So that was found in the 1950s. And then, you know, he and his group began salvaging it. Mel Fisher came in in the 60s, and it wasn't until 1979 that he decided, man, I really better get legal claim, federal legal claim, because the state of Florida began basically clawing back different, you know, became more onerous with their regulations, their restrictions. And so he went into federal court and he you know won the right as i said to diligently salvage these wrecks and uh i didn't come along until 2010 and uh my father and i purchased these rights from his children years ago i read a book that was one of the more mesmerizing books i ever read ship of gold okay well i've got an interesting segue about the ship of gold
0: uh good okay well uh Let's uh, uh, you, if you have an interesting segue about the ship of gold, let, let's talk about it. And I want to get back to your discovery or what happened with you. Ship of gold. For those who haven't listened, uh, was a guy up in Columbus. He found a ship, which was
1: you, Tommy Thompson is Tom, his name. Yeah, that's right, Tommy Thompson. And the ship is the U.S. This SS Central America. It sank in 1857.
0: And, well, I'll have you give all the details? Basically, he finds this thing. And then I think he's still tied up in illegal stuff to this day, isn't he? He's in jail. In he's in jail. Michigan. He's uh, on the run in give us the, give us the whole story. This, this is fascinating.
1: Because I don't even know it then. I, go ahead. Okay. Well, my connection, believe it or not, it's going to sound pretty fantastic. My great-great-grandfather died on the Central America.
0: Who are you? Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm living history here. They ask
1: me if treasure is in my blood. And to some degree, from this perspective, it certainly is. Uh, it's a story that my father was fascinated with that I've heard since I was young. Our uh, My great-great-grandfather, his great-grandfather, was a uh, a bar owner in Hamilton, he owned a you know a bar and hotel kind of thing in Hamilton, Ohio. And in 1849, when the gold rush happened, he gave it all up and went to California to ply his trade and dig for gold. And he had was successful, and he had brought was on his way back to New York with his gold on the SS Central America and went down in 1857. And so that is my connection to the story. But the story of Tommy Thompson is he was a truly innovative maverick. He used ROVs before ROVs were a thing. ROVs are... Remote operated vehicles for submersibles to go out into great depths that divers can't dive to. Um, So he he and the, you know, was able to... Invented how to squirt out basically silicone to stick to the gold bars and bring it up. Amazing. It is. He he invented the whole entire process. He brought it all up. Um, One of the biggest investors was the Columbus Dispatch. There was a lot of big money in Columbus that invested in him. As you said, he was from there. And I don't know the particulars and I don't really want to say the particulars because there's so many different stories about it, but... Um, A lot of the gold has disappeared. And a lot of the investors want to know where that gold is. A lot of it was uh, the coins were cleaned and put into presentation pieces and sold. And, you know, so a lot of it is accounted for, but there's a tremendous amount that is not accounted for. And uh, they want to know where it is. And Tommy was on the lam for a long time, right in Florida, right in Vero Beach, near where I was treasure hunting. And they raided a house and all they found were like, you know, some scraps saying that he was there. And then ultimately, a couple of months later, he was uh, caught that in uh West Palm Beach and he went to uh Jail. I mean, he's ultimately in federal prison, and he's not in federal prison for the theft. He's in federal prison for contempt for not cooperating, not telling any of these people, not answering any of their questions, not participating. He's a real apparently. He's you know. I actually wrote a letter to him because I'd like to visit him (laughs) in Warren, Michigan, Michigan, just to talk to him because he's such an interesting character. But yeah, he like won't talk to his lawyers anymore and stuff, and he just won't cooperate. But there's a lot of gold that's still out there, and no one knows where it is. So. What he did illegally
0: was not disclose and share with his investors. I thought that he, I thought that he got his claim taken away from him by the by the state. No, 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 no. It was more of a
1: a fraud kind of situation. Wow. I mean, it was a like a billion dollars, yeah. right? A
0: billion it was dollar an incredible fine. Story. Gosh. All right. So you and your you mentioned you and your dad. You find. That Mel Fisher wants
1: to sell his claim or you approach him or tell me about that. My father has had a lifelong fascination with finding treasure. He grew up in Deer Park, uh, didn't, never saw the ocean, you know, never went on a vacation and went to the Saturday morning cereals and would see these swashbuckling adventures on the big screen and have these dreams of, you know, finding lost treasure and adventure and setting out on, you know, a, a sailboat. And so in 1970, he got certified to scuba dive and uh, got me certified when I was 12 years old. You know, it was, you know, really early and would take us on these adventures. And then in 1985, when Mel Fisher, you know, found the Atocha, the keys were a buzz with treasure. And my father and another real estate developer here in town named Mike Zicka were down in the keys uh, and they ran into a <laughs> – I'll call him a pirate in a bar. Arr! Exactly, and he knew right where the next big ship was. And these guys invested a lot of money in in nineteen eighties money into this guy, and he turned out to be nothing but a charlatan. Mm. And uh, which is sadly the vast majority of these treasure hunters. It's, it really is more of a con than it is a true you know thirst to find something. And so they, uh, they got fleeced pretty good in the 80s, but the, the sense of adventure never lost him. And so he lived in, on an area called Jupiter Island, which is on the east, central east coast of Florida. Um, and uh, just to the north is where these shipwrecks are. And so he's always been fascinated with this area. It's known as the Treasure Coast because of these shipwrecks. And he got to know a lot of the old-timers that went out and salvaged the wrecks, and he would buy artifacts from them occasionally, and that sort of thing. And then in 2010, one of these guys came to him and he said, hey, the Fisher family is selling these rights. And being a entrepreneur and having this natural wanderlust his whole life, he called me up in February of 2010, and I was sitting up in my house watching it snow. And he says, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, but the only way I'll do it is if you partner with me, because I don't want to be involved, you know, I want somebody that I can trust that will run it for me. And I thought, treasure hunting in Florida? Wow. I'm like, yeah, I'll give that a shot. And uh, naively, I set off on a uh, track that I had no idea would change my life. Wow. It's, how much do you buy that for? If you don't
0: mind me asking, if you do, just tell me. But this is the aggressive life, so I got to ask the question what I was asking.
1: I'd rather oh, but, not say okay. honestly, but I will say that uh, ultimately, I was able to sell ninety percent of it for twenty times what I paid for it. I am proud of that stat. <laughs> but okay, well, let me ask
0: you this though: the, the money—that's great. So it was a good, whatever it was, it was a good investment. What for him to come up with that? Was there any? Pain you he he you had to go through for it. But were you selling houses? Were you second mortgaging on houses?
1: Was it enough that you had in savings? Was it? I mean, it was my father. You know, I was strictly a partner in regards to I was running it. I didn't have any money. But my father's been a successful real estate developer in his life, and this was just as I said, he had already lost some money back in the eighties, and he was ready to double down. And he uh, just he he has this passion that he just never stops. He never rests, and he's always on it. And you know adventurous life as well, and trying new things, and this just appealed to him in a way that was just kind of ultimately turned out to be magical. That's really cool. And how
0: old was he when he came to you and said, I'm going to buy this and have you be in, in it with me?
1: This was, he would have been 66 at the time. Is he still alive right now? He is, yes. I'm
0: just thinking like the transferable principles to our listeners here today. It makes you wonder, like, how many things... Would we do that? We can do. Like some people would say, "Oh, well, of course." Well, you know, if I had the money to buy a claim and Mel Fisher came to me, I, I, of course I would. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think most people would. I don't. I, there's other developers that could have done what your dad did, or other people that just wouldn't have done that. I, I'm always struck by somebody who goes off a different script than that.
1: This was a lifelong quest, and you know, I really do believe that, you know, the biggest risk you can take in life is not following your dreams. And I would get – you ask about age. It's funny. Most of the people that came to me that wanted to do this were older. Hmm. They were guys that had lived their life and they wanted to go after something that they had thought about their whole life but never had the courage to do. You know, they, they, they maybe they had a little bit more money because they were retired and they could waste it. But ultimately, it was about chasing a dream from their youth. And I saw it time and time again. So I really try to encourage people to just live your passions, follow your dreams. It's worked out for you. It's worked out for me. It, you know, any success story you hear... Those people had a baseline passion that was driving them, and it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the success. It wasn't about the ultimate goal. It was about, you know, this is what I'm doing and, uh, you know, believing in yourself. I like that narrative, live your dream, go after your
0: passion, so long as what's understood in that is it's not going to be fun, and it's going to be difficult, and there's great risk, and you're going to hate your life a lot. This was the most the
1: miserable experience <laughs> right, of my life. It right. was. I mean,
0: already, even before we get into how you found the ships and everything, I want to get into that. Let's just establish here, I mean, your dad already lost a lot of Jack, right? Mm-hmm, right. And a lot of people were going after their dream, and they were getting nothing but heartache. So I think when we say that, we're like, oh, so i just going to find a job that I love and it's my dream, and, and money's going to follow the sky, and, and and men and women are going to love me. And that, no, no, man, it's, it's freaking backbreaking work. That's what dreams are.
1: That's exactly right. There's a long arduous process that goes into the fulfillment of any dream it uh doesn't happen but you're right that uh, seems to be today i don't want to label just kids but they have this instant gratification of i want to be famous now i want to be successful now i want the money now i want it all now when it really is a process so brent your dad comes to you says i'm putting the jack down i need you and his partner i got the legality and then what Unbelievably, 17 days after we purchased the salvage rights, uh, one of the subcontractors working for us with their boat found a three-and-a-half-foot bronze swivel gun that had 50 gold coins and 40 silver coins loading in, inside the breach of this cannon. And I thought, wow, this is easy. Wow. 17 days, it, it blew my mind. So and, you hired people to work for you. You're, you're not just out there with your own
0: surfboard looking down beneath you and, and scuba diving. You've got people working with you.
1: That's correct. Basically, the way this Fishers had run this was they would engage what they called subcontractors. These were these people that I were telling you about that were calling me on a daily basis, wanting to live their dream. And basically, if you could put together a boat, you could put together a crew, you pay your own way, we will give you the right under a subcontract to go out and search for this treasure. And the agreement is that anything you find, we split 50-50. So uh, that was the way that the fishers had run it. And again, diminishing returns were happening on the 1715 fleet as they were on the Atocha to a great degree. There wasn't a whole lot coming up. And There's this question, how do you trust those people? How do you know that they were turning in anything? And then there wasn't. So immediately after that, we realized that we could not rely on these, you know, people that, you know, they (laughs) they prided themselves on being pirates. You know, they ran around (laughs) acting like they were pirates. So that's when we built our own boat. And ultimately, you know, I had to take matters into my own hands to, to really make this all come to fruition. Wow. So you cut all those folks out. where they pissed? Well, no, 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 They still continued to search right. and they would find things like, okay, so this cannon that we found 17 days in, we didn't even have our own boat. We didn't get our boat till the second year in. And uh, this was a subcontractor that found this amazing, it was the only bronze swivel cannon. So basically it's a three and a half foot cannon that would be mounted on the rail of the ship. And they could, it was on a yoke that they could pivot and yaw for, you know, five, firing up close, and um, it was the only bronze swivel gun ever found on this fleet. And then we, you know, we all kind of joked about it at the time that within the incrustation of this cannon, you know, there's always been rumors he could find treasure in cannons. It's never happened, but there were always these stories and lore in treasure hunting that there was, you know, sometimes treasures hidden in. And we got back to our lab and we started removing the incrustation from around this cannon. And lo and behold, there was a clump in there that had 50 gold coins and 40 silver coins in it. And it Totally blew my mind. I mean, I as I said, this was seventeen days into the ownership of this thing, and I was—I really did for a moment think this stuff's easy. This is going to be great, and um, but it was—it was, it was um, just. A, An incredible sensation to see something that old come out of the ocean and be the first person, or you know, right in there to touch it, and then to to peel away the layers of that onion and find more and more and learn about these coins that are you know from different places and different time periods and the journey that they took from you know, say Peru to 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 my hand. It really is an incredible experience. Wow! So you. You di- You do that first. That's your first day
0: or your first fifteen days. He says <laughs> in there, and then it's just, what are you doing? Are you plotting every day exactly where you did on a GPS? That's exactly because right. I remember um, in the book that I read, Tommy Thompson was talking about that um, Mel Fisher was notorious for not having a system to find the t- Atosha. Just every day they would get up and say, hey, this could be the day. And they'd go out and they'd search someplace. But he kind of, his Rex, he
1: systematized. He plotted it out. I assume you're doing that for this. That's correct. We were using AutoCAD. Um, And with the advent, obviously, of GPS helped a lot. In the early days out there, they were just using sextants and markers on the beach to try to determine where they were in the water. So those maps are, you know, very unreliable. But in modern times, you know, all the boats have to have a GPS and they have to have it over the stern of the boat. You know, it's very important. We use the boats to dig into the sand, okay? We use the prop wash to excavate. And so we want that holes basically over the rear of the boat, and we want that GPS marker over that excavation. Back in the day, they had it on the front of the boat. They had it on the side of the boat. Nothing was accurate. So now we mandate that you have to have your GPS over your excavation hole. And uh, we plot it all out on, on AutoCAD. And so we have a really comprehensive record, certainly since the 80s, of where, you know, not only, you know, artifacts have been found, but equally as important where the empty holes are. The empty holes. How deep are the holes? It depends on the depth of the sand. We go out and we have to excavate. All of these materials, That certainly the heavier materials that you see here, silver, gold, lead, sinks through the sand mm. rapidly. You know, we're in along the beach. So it's the high energy surf zone. Those waves are crashing. Everything's vibrating. And something you know, very dense with specific gravity like gold will move through that sand quickly because the sand vibrates and it just, you know, finds its deepest and lowest points, generally in the cracks and crevices of the limestone bedrock. And so we have to go out and excavate that sand. And where we found this treasure was along the beach. It was five feet of sand. It took us a half an hour to excavate that hole. But ultimately down there, there was nothing but broken limestone, cracks and crevices that held all of these coins that had been sitting there for, you know, 300 years. So uh, that's the process by which we go and we look. And then we map those holes. And as I said, the empty hole is just something where we find nothing or we find a tremendous amount of modern debris. Um, I have a newfound appreciation for litter bugs and, uh, you know, the penalties that should be imposed on them. Right. So is it a drill you're using to drill down? Or no, no, no. What? Basically, we've developed a big aluminum tube that swings down over the propeller of the boat, okay? And it's in one of two configurations. It either takes that prop wash that's coming off the propeller and turns it at a 90-degree angle and blows straight down. Or we can section it off on my boat and blow back at a 45-degree angle so that when we're getting into the beach, we can kind of scallop out the beach and get further up into the beach. So we anchor the boat up in four points. There's two lines that come off the bow, two lines that come off the stern. You're anchored down, and when you put these— Uh, prop wash deflectors over the propeller, you're basically stuck. You know, the boat doesn't work as a boat anymore. You're a a tool out there on the water that's just taking water and thrusting it down to blow the sand away so that we can excavate and get closer to the the treasures. Interesting. So this is,
0: it's certainly treasure hunting, but this is not the same thing as I'm going to hope that I just Find an X under a palm tree today.
1: Yeah. Because <laughs> you're you're systematically working your GPS points. That's absolutely right. It's as I try to be as methodical as I could possibly be about it um, in gritting out an area, excavating it, and then moving on to the next area. Because you're absolutely right. It is still to this day. Most of the people that do it do it under the Fisher motto of, you know, we wake up today and we kind of, you know, stick our tongue out in the wind and see which way it's blowing and say, okay, over there, we'll go dig. There hasn't been a concerted effort to truly try to grid out an area and say we've definitively, you know, found or not found what was in that area. And so I try to develop that more methodical approach, and I think it bore fruit ultimately. So you've got 15 ships that are in this
0: area that have gone down, and over how long— Or how big of a mile,
1: generally, do you think these ships could all be in? Oh, it's uh, of the 11 that sank, only six have positively been identified. Okay, Uh so and not all of them were laden completely with treasure. So there's still five out there that no one knows, you know, their existence or whereabouts. I actually have a theory on one. Um, I'm pretty sure I know where no one is, honestly, but we could never get the rights to it under the current laws. So I've not gone after it. Um, Where is it? Don't leave us hanging. Where where, where do you (laughs) think it is? It's further north than anybody's ever imagined one of the 1715 fleet vessels, which is further north than Cape Canaveral. Generally... Um, it's been accepted that the, the wrecks were went from about Cape Canaveral down to Stewart, Florida. So when you ask in terms of miles, these ships themselves were spread out over miles. And then the debris fields of those same ships are also spread out over miles. Uh, so it's a it. wide, vast swath of ocean that, you know, you need to try to get down to the bottom of. And then not only the bottom on the top of the sand, but five feet below that sand. And it is a— it's mind-numbing when you think about how big the bottom of the ocean is when you're trying to cover as much of it as possible. It really, it, it can it, it can wear on you. How deep down are you going? Like, it depends. Um, 100 feet, 200 I mean, no, feet? No, thankfully, we're really lucky um, in that these ships were sailing back to Spain. On July 30th, a hurricane began to blow, and when it began to blow it would blow the ships from the gulf stream the safe water of you know out off the east coast of florida towards the beach so these ships hit the beach at, in the, the reefs at like 25 feet of water, okay. and then the waves pounded the ships into thousands of pieces on those reefs, and they floated for miles along the beach, the debris. Like, for instance, where I found all this gold in 2015, there's a set of condos right in front of, you know, on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the beach from where we found this. And when they were building these condos, this specific building, the northernmost building where we found this stuff, they found an anchor and they found a skeleton. And the reason that they were able to determine that the skeleton came from this shipwreck was a ring that was still on the skeleton's Oh, my finger. gosh.
0: That is Disney movie stuff right there. And was his finger pointing to where the treasure was? <laughs> I could only hope. But, no, sadly, I had to find it ourselves. So you've got how many square miles that's your target area in
1: total for this dig? Our permits encompassed about 35 square miles of ocean. So basically we have the exclusive permitted rights to go within that area. Um, the ships aren't necessarily in that whole area. As I said, they, they're pretty well defined from, you know, the edge of the reef into the beach and then northward so that's how we develop our tracks um, you know and and we follow it along trails you know we develop these trails and we look for you know where the debris field goes and say you know somebody found something over there in the 80s but nobody's looked over here let's go look over there it's that kind of approach of you know trying to look at the maps as you you know brought up and then trying to divine your own sense of where did this you know path travel. What percentage of your claim
0: or that you have rights to have you already searched and what percentage is left to go?
1: It'll never be searched. I can tell you that. We'll never, ever historically. People will be finding things on these racks. It's so difficult and we're limited to a very finite window. Weather is Hmm. our biggest obstacle. We can only do this in the summer. So it's June, July, and August, you know, maybe a little bit of May, maybe a little bit of September. But June, July, and August is our window. And even the end of August is hurricane season. And so that usually we're done by the 15th. Mm. So we've got such a small window to go make this happen. Even within that window, the weather is not cooperative or conducive. So, you know, we've we've worked on an average, you know, 45, 50 days a year, Mm. you know. And so it's really difficult to make a, you know— a living, you know, a profit, anything, or you really get any momentum going, you know, when you're talking about trying to completely excavate an entire area, it's it's almost impossible.
0: Of those 45 days a year, how many of those days are you finding gold?
1: <laughs> um, Wow. You know, one or two if you're lucky. And that's, you know, and I have 10 or 12. That's living your dream. (laughs) That's living your dream.
0: 43
1: days of frustration. Well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, we found gold. I did it for uh, seven years and we found gold on, you know, about five days, you know, and, and that, you know, I have boats that have never found anything. Literally never found anything. I mean, we, we would find on a consistent basis the things that I brought for you today, pottery shards and musket balls. OK, we would find that kind of stuff. And then, you know, but anything that, that glitters, the gold and the silver, it, you know, it happens very, very rarely. I mean, and that's what people don't understand about this. You know, they joke about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. I lived it every day, questioning my own sanity of we're going out here and we're finding beer cans and lead fishing sinkers day after day, and I'm not paying any bills. And I will give you some numbers in that, you know, a year into this, we had over a million dollars invested and we had $300,000 worth of treasure. So I'm, you know, 700000 plus in the hole. And this treasure that I'm finding that, that encompassed that 300000 was getting me, as you said, on the Today Show and Good Morning America and, you know, all and everybody I meet, you're living the dream, you know. And, and I'm like, I'm going bankrupt, you know. <laughs> and so it really was a crazy time in my head because I used to joke with people. They would say, hey, you should write a book. And I would say, I am going to write a How book. I'll be a loser. Well, <laughs> no, I, I told them point blank. It's going to be called They Tell Me I'm Living a Dream. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. Because it's just it, – it, it's not – Anything that people imagine in any walk of life, but certainly with the treasure hunting, um, it is not glitter and gold. You know, it is, it is tough rooting around through sharp rocks, shells, on your hands and knees at the bottom of the ocean. People think of it as this romantic scuba diving. When we just use scuba diving as a tool to be on the bottom of the ocean, it's about metal detecting and sifting through... Tons of shell and rock and sand, and you can't imagine how much hand fanning and moving of this debris and how cut up you get your knees, your arms your elbows it is there's nothing glamorous about this work
0: wow brent you're you're preaching to me now this is this is really, really strong I think so many of us have just had an awful run last year, last two years i mean America's not been a fun place to live for a lot of people it's just been trying difficult times, you know, and that was, bef- that was on top of the frustration many of us had before two years ago. You uh, and this is just, it's just a really good gut check. Cause you're right. I do think, Oh, treasure hunting, man down in Corona beer and beautiful tropics. And, you know, swimming people in their bikinis and finding stuff down there. And uh, you're there's right. Some of that. Of the, <laughs> uh, there's got to be some of it, but not to the degree that you would think. And you painting that picture of difficulty is, is really helpful. Perseverance. You've got to be a major guy who perseveres to do this then.
1: No question about it. You've got to overcome the mental obstacles that i talked about of doing the same thing and expecting different results and in my case um my story from perseverance is really personal and uh, tragic uh one of my divers drowned while we were looking for this treasure uh, two years prior to us actually ultimately finding it but uh i i gave that gentleman cpr for you know 40 minutes uh it was the single worst day of my life and uh that's when I really had to question myself, w- what the hell am I doing here? Because yeah. you know, I'm not willing to give my life for a gold coin. It just wasn't who I was. And uh, we had some guys quit, and they didn't want to come back. And ultimately, the question that I had to ask myself was, why was I doing it? And um, I had come to the conclusion that I had given my father my word that I was going to see this thing through. Mm-hmm. And if that ultimately cost me my life, then I was okay With losing my life in honor of that commitment. It wasn't about the gold coins. It wasn't about the, you know, TV appearances. But and uh, so ultimately, we got to work and perseverance is what it's all about in life. I mean, you're going to get kicked in the teeth. And uh, if you don't get back up, you know, you're just, you know, you're destined to wallow in misery. How did he die? Uh, He drowned with what they call a a shallow water blackout. I mean, it was the coroner just determined it to be a drowning, an accidental drowning. But in diving, you can sometimes blackout underwater. And unfortunately, when we work, we don't adhere to the regulations or the recommendations of, you know, recreational diving, where you're always supposed to have a buddy. You're supposed to have someone there with you in case something like this were to happen. We dive solo and we don't even use the BCs, which are the inflatable Mm. devices, because you don't want it to get encumbered on rocks and and hung up and stuff like that. We don't use spare, you know, uh, um, masks. Regulators. Regulators, sorry. And, um, You know, because we tried to keep everything so slim underwater because we're crawling around. We're not scuba diving. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we were in some deeper water. We were in about 35 feet of water that day. And um, it became apparent after a little while that he wasn't answering. And we have a system by which we would hit the dive ladder with a hammer. And that rings underwater like a bell. And anybody can hear it. And that was the indication to come up. And it didn't happen. And um ultimately uh another guy on the crew dove in and, and brought him up to the top. And um yeah. sadly, I you know, I was the one that had to call and tell his father. Oh, that's rough. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no thanks. But it's ultimately, you know, it's about overcoming those things. Yeah. You know, I mean those bad things happen to everybody. And, you know, it was it was tough for me, but it was a heck of a lot worse for his family. And uh well, so, and he made also a choice of how he wanted to live his life exactly and all what that stuff. Exactly his father said. He died doing what he loved, mm-hmm. and that gave me great solace when his father looked at me in the eye and, and, and told me that. And um, it, was, it was interesting that just— Prior to that, he had found his very first gold coin. Oh, wow. He had been doing this for a long time, and he he talked about this elusive gold coin on video that he had never found. And so I had a clip of him talking about this elusive gold coin, and then I was able to give his father the actual gold coin that he found. So that was kind of a special moment.
0: So at this point, your venture is obviously profitable. You've made back the investment. Was there a day when you turned the corner? I mean, because it sounds like— It was
1: that day. (laughs) I mean, the day— Really? On on July 31st of 2015. So, you know, as I said, the the ship sank on July 30th and and 31st of the year 1715. And on July 30th and 31st of 2015, exactly 300 years to the day that the ship sank in a hurricane— we found 300 gold coins and ultimately over the course of that week found 350 gold coins worth $4.5 million. It happened 300 years to the day that the ship sank. Sheesh. And that's, that's when I first, you know, turned a profit, got back into the black. And, you know, I'll be perfectly frank that because I know, you know, the obstacles faced by the state of Florida, I knew how difficult it was. I had a, an interesting dilemma. I got a tremendous amount of attention. I gave the story to CBS News as an exclusive. They flew me to New York. We announced it live on the CBS morning show. I went over and did Fox News with Bill Hemmer, who's a local elder boy. And um, I, you know, ultimately I gave a TED Talk in Munich, Germany. Uh, They flew me to Japan to appear on TV. And as a result of all this international attention, I had a great deal of interest from people calling up saying, we want to invest. And I said, well, how much do you want to invest? And uh, because I knew the, the long-term viability of this, that I had really done something that was, you know, unique and incredible, a one-of-a-kind fine that uh, I ended up ultimately selling uh, 90% of the business mm. um, for 20 times what I had paid for it. And I still am involved. I still consult. And I still own 10% of it in case, you know, anything happens. I go down in the summer and, I, you know, I participate with my guys and stuff like that. But, uh, for so the you most sold part, it for
0: 20 times what the investment was, plus you got made the gold. The gold. Yeah, that's wow, correct. That's yeah. great. And these guys who made these investments are buying in. What percentage of them do you think are saying, this is going to be, make sense for me financially? And what percentage of them is saying, this is
1: just something fun I want to do? It is absolutely a hobby, and I preach it every day. It's the world's worst investment. I usually preface this whole story by saying, if anybody ever asks you to invest in a treasure hunting operation, you tell them to go screw themselves because (laughs) it really, truly is a bad deal. And um, so you have to approach it from a – adventure, a passion, a hobby, and hope it works out because the vast majority of people that get into treasure hunting, they, it never pans out. It, it is not, you know, there's nothing guaranteed about this, hence the name.
0: Brent, are you ready for the lightning round? Just when I give you a question and you got to get me like quick answer, like whew, okay. fast. You ready?
1: Sure. Ready. Because we're at the end of our time. Treasure you're most proud of. Uh, A class ring that we found. It was a class ring from 1974, and I was able to get it back to the guy that had it stolen from him in 1976. Treasure you're most interested in searching for? Um, You know, honestly, that would be the key to my soulmate's heart. (laughs) <laughs> uh, are you married? No, I am a single man, and I am uh, out there looking. So, are you searching uh, for a soulmate, or are you searching
0: for something that your soulmate is going to enjoy? Are you right now dating anybody? No,
1: I'm not. So that's why w- I jokingly would you like to say that's what I'm your looking net worth for. Me? So maybe we can find you. Uh,
0: maybe we find you a soulmate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, they can find me at brentbrisbane.com. <laughs> there you go.
0: There you go. There you heard it, or heard it. Ladies, biggest motivation that keeps you
1: going on hard days. Certainly when it came to the treasure hunting, it was the commitment that I had given to my father. There were miserable days, and uh, there was nothing that I was going to do that would let that fail. And so that provided the motivation every single day. Brent, this has been just fantastic. If people
0: want to follow up with you, if they want to date you, if they want to know more about your story,
1: just give us an advertisement. Brent Brisbane dot com. Um, I do some public speaking, things like that. So, you know, if people are interested in that, um, obviously, the, you know, the dating life could help. You know, it's been COVID and it's been tough. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'd be happy about he's that. He's not a bad looking guy, ladies. I'm not a lady, but he's not
0: a bad looking guy. So he's worth he's worth checking out there.
1: Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you having me
0: on. (laughs) Uh, Brent, my pleasure. And uh, thanks for sharing your your story, your history, and giving us a push. This is really, really good. There you have it. Hey, guys and ladies, if you like what you heard today, give us a review. The more positive reviews we get, the more people we can help, and actually the more we can land great guests like today. So that's what we've got for you today. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, A Guide to Get Up and Go Forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.